Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, I'm Dr. Bamika Patel. Um, I'm from Prisma Health University of South Carolina, Greenville. And I, here with me is Dr. Eileen Weitz. Hi, I'm Dr. Eileen Weitz. I'm from the Keck School of Medicine, USC, in Southern California. Today, we're going to have an exciting discussion about talking about PNH. And um, Dr. Weitz and I will, you know, tell you about our experience with PNH from diagnosis and the current therapies available. So, Dr. Weitz, we know that uh, PNH is a rare disease. What are some of the things, what are the, some of the challenges have you faced with diagno- disease awareness and diagnosis of this disease in your practice? Well, because it's such a rare disease, very few people think about it. And in order to diagnose it, you need to think about it. Um, most of the time, the patients will have seen at least four doctors before they get to me or get to you. And um, the biggest challenge is recognizing that the patient has unexplained hemolysis. And that's probably the the hardest thing for people to diagnose. Have there been any um, circumstances? I know personally, I've come across it where misdiagnoses have happened, right? Where there's delay to diagnosis to PNH and misdiagnosis of PNH. Have you had any circumstances where you've come across complex cases where, um, you know, a T, like I've had TIAs that have come across and it was a misdiagnosis, like they just said it was iron deficiency, a TIA, but it was actually PNH. Um, have you had any of the, those types of cases and scenarios? Well, I think most people think of PNH as only a hemolytic disease, but in fact, it's a highly prothrombotic disease. So if you have patients who are um, who are diagnosed with unusual, especially unusual thrombotic events, mm-hmm. you should think of PNH in that setting, especially if they have evidence of hemolysis. I totally agree. And where do you think primary, do you, I know that community doctors are really involved in, in helping us evaluate these patients. Um, you know, what do you think is the role of primary care doctors besides recognition of hemolysis? Um, I think there's a delay to referral to um, hematologists. What are some of the um, things that do you think we should recommend to community doctors and sending them to us so that way we can uh, accurately diagnose them and getting them on treatment promptly? Well, I think if the patient has evidence of hemolysis and they have evidence of unusual thrombosis or they're pancytopenic, mm-hmm. I think it's pretty clear that that patient needs to go to a specialist. So it's not a fault if to not manage that patient yourself. The problem is that it's PNH is such a complex disease and the treatments are complex. So it's much better to refer that patient to a center of excellence mm-hmm. with somebody who has had experience taking care of that patient. Agree. And so, in, um, you know, with diagnosis of PNH, um, some of the PNH complications can be overlooked, you know, like such as, um, you know, thrombosis, right? We know there's atypical sites, but some patients show with typical sites that we commonly see. Um, what are some of the recommendations could you give to um, 
community doctors or in the community that um, if they do see a clot, would you screen everybody with an unprovoked clot for PNH? No, I think we probably would not screen every unprovoked thrombosis. Mm -hmm. But I think patients who present with a Bud Chiari syndrome, patients who present with cavernous sinus thrombosis, those kinds of patients, there are specific things associated with those disorders, but PNH is one of them. So you might think about it in that setting. Right. In, in this setting, you know, like, so with diagnosis, um, from diagnose, from, you know, diagnosis to now, uh, when they get to their primary hematologist, what are some of the key points should um, patients be aware of when they're diagnosed with PNH? What should they be aware of, in your opinion? Well, they need to receive some education on the disease and what it means to them. And since there are now several approved treatments with more coming down the line, mm -hmm. I think it's really important for them to understand why it's important for them to get treated, when they should get treated, and the fact that once they start treatment, all of the treatments will need to be continued for a lifetime. Right. And I think patients, um, you know, that's the first question at least I got was, am I going to have to take, is this a treatment for six months to 12 months? I'm like, this is lifelong treatment. And, you know, and I think a lot of, there's a lot of anxiety also for patients once they're diagnosed, right? There was a delay to diagnosis for most patients because um, they've gone through several doctors, as you mentioned, but I guess lifelong treatment is one of the concerns I always see, like, you know, they're like, you know, can I afford it? affordability because of insurance, um, you know, can I, does it, you know, have complications with other medications? So, you know, once patients are diagnosed, um, you know, there is, as you mentioned, there's several therapeutic options available. How do you decide on what uh, initial therapy do you start them on? Because now we have, we have C5 inhibitors that are FDA approved and we have C3 inhibitors that's FDA approved. How do you decide on the sequential, uh, you know, treatment of these patients now? Mm. Well, I think we're all working through this. Mm -hmm. um, there's no question that we have multiple years of efficacy of a C5 inhibitor. Mm -hmm. So, and we don't, would not necessarily need to start a patient on epiluzumab unless they were in the hospital with complications. And in that setting, we would only be able to use ecolizumab because of pharmacy restrictions. But we would probably start someone on a C5 inhibitor. That would be the initial treatment. But we have recently started someone just on a C3 inhibitor wow. on a So, um, And there is an insurance, very large insurance company in the in Southern California that has made that their mandate that mm -hmm. you have to start a C3 inhibitor first, even though the published literature is not there. Right. But in spite of that, um, so you may be able to start on a C3 inhibitor without even doing a C5 inhibitor. So um, I think that uh, the, the, the waters are a little murky right now um, because um, we just don't have the body of experience yet. Thank you for uh, participating in uh, this podcast, uh, putting it all together. We hope you enjoyed the dynamic conversation with Dr. Weitz.
You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.